Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Today is Monday, the 4th of December, 2023. I'm the Head of Research in Asia at Bank Julius Baer. My name is Mark Matthews and welcome to our weekly Beyond Markets update. Higher for longer seems like a distant memory now, with the 10-year Treasury yield back at 4.2% from 5% in October. What an amazing move. And of course, stocks love this because when the discount rate that analysts use in their models goes lower, equity valuations go higher. Now, if the 10-year yield went down very fast to something like 3%, the market wouldn't like that because that would mean something's wrong with the economy. 4.2%, on the other hand, is just nice. What was different about this rate hike cycle was that usually emerging market central banks follow the Fed's lead. This time, actually, the emerging market central banks started raising first, starting with Brazil back in March 2021, to be precise. And today, they are the ones leading the way once again, cutting rates. Developed market central banks look like they're going to follow them, and the one that will cut first is almost certainly going to be the European Central Bank especially after inflation in the eurozone came out at 2.4% in November, down from 29 in October and lower than consensus expectations of 2.7%. And after a speech on Friday from the governor of the central bank, the market's pricing of the chance of a rate cut went from 10% in March all the way up to 75% in March. Because the governor of the central bank of France said, and I'll quote him here, barring any shock, rate hikes are now over. The question of a cut may arise when the time comes during 2024. Well, in central bank speak, what that really means is there's going to be a rate cut in 2024. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell also gave a speech on Friday. He said it would be premature to conclude a sufficiently restrictive stance had been achieved, which sounds hawkish. But the market gave greater weight to what he said next, which was that the policy was well into restrictive territory. And I'll quote him here, having come so far so quickly, the FOMC is moving forward carefully as the risks of under and over tightening are becoming more balanced. And what the market also liked was that he didn't push back against comments from Federal Reserve Governor Chris Waller, who's considered the third most hawkish of the 11 officials who vote on monetary policy. He was the first Fed official to say in a speech last week that the Fed might even cut rates and he cited the Taylor Rule as a reason why. Taylor Rule is an interest rate guideline invented by Stanford University professor John Taylor that computes the optimal Fed funds rate. Last year, the Taylor Rule implied the Fed funds rate should be as high as 8%. Now it's saying 5.3%, which is lower than the current Fed funds rate of 5.5%. So is inflation, by the way, and that's a big change too. This time last year, the Fed fund rate was at 4%, but core personal consumption expenditure inflation, the Fed's favorite measure of inflation, was 5%. Now the Fed funds rate is at 5.5%, and the core personal consumption expenditure inflation rate for November, that was released on Thursday last week, came out at 3.5%. It's falling nicely from 3.7% in October, and the Cleveland Federal Reserve, which uses high-frequency data to estimate monthly numbers, estimates that it was 3.46% in November. Now, we won't get that number until three days before Christmas, but it's certainly nice to know 
that it's continuing to come down. And based on what data is available for this month, Cleveland Federal Reserve thinks that core personal consumption expenditure inflation should be 3.36%. So that's nice to see. Of course, all of this is something that financial markets started to cotton on to a month ago. Since then, they've done very well. A classic portfolio of 60% invested in the S&P 500 index and 40% invested in the Bloomberg U.S. aggregate index that holds investment-grade bonds returned 7.3% last month. That's its ninth best return out of the 572 months since January 1976. If we look at what happened to bonds and stocks in the months that followed that kind of return, well, for bonds, November was the eighth best month since 1976, the best since May 1985. Bonds returned 4.5% last month. If we look at what happened in the 19 other months that also had strong bond returns, six months out with only two exceptions, returns were still positive by another 6.9%, including the two exceptions. On a one-year view, returns were also positive in all but two exceptions, and the average return, including those two exceptions, was 12.9%. As for stocks, the S&P 500 index gained 8.9% last month, which was its 18th best monthly advance since 1950. Six months out, it was higher in 14 of the 20 other times when it had such strong monthly returns. Well, 14 out of 20 is a bit of a coin toss, but on a one-year view, the odds are better with only three and the 20 other times down, and the average of all of them was up 16.7%. If we look inside the index, we all know the big gains this year have been in technology stocks. The S&P has returned 21.5% this year, that's 19.7% in capital gains and 1.8% in dividends, but if you exclude the technology stocks, it's returned just 3.9%, of which 2.6% is a capital gain and 1.4% is the dividend. As a house, we like big technology stocks, but you have to admit the value added to them this year alone is absolutely staggering. For example, Microsoft added over a trillion dollars in market cap this year. That's three times the size of the entire Singapore stock market. And it added that on top of the $1.8 trillion in value it already had at the beginning of the year. Apple added about $900 billion, NVIDIA added about $800 billion. In fact, the seven stocks that saw the largest increases in their values were all the magnificent seven. There are other sectors, of course, that haven't done so well, like biotechnology stocks, for example, that are down 6% this year. There's no exact line between big pharma and biotech, but Generally, biotech companies tend to be more entrepreneurial, more inventive, and they use cutting-edge technologies. So that also means they need access to capital and are long-duration stories. That explains why they didn't do well as rates went up. Now, as we know, rates are going down. So intuitively, things are looking up for them. And indeed, the sector is up 9% from its October low, but it's still down 30% from its 2021 high. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now. I wish you a great week ahead and we'll speak with you again next week. Goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, 
visit us at www.juliasbear.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliasbear.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.